0: Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm delighted to have KD Dorsey with me as my guest today. He is the VP of inside sales for a company called Patient Pop over in Santa Monica in California. KD, thank you very much for joining me today.
1: Hell yeah, my man. I'm excited to get into it with you here.
0: Excellent. Would you mind giving the audience 60 seconds on your background and your journey so far?
1: For sure, 60 seconds. So, I am a chosen salesperson. I got into sales because I thought it was the most secure job I could have, not because people aren't getting fired, but because they're always hiring for sales. So, I figured even if I was bad, someone would still hire me or give me a shot. (laughs) So, I've been selling and leading sales for the past 15 years now. I'm a student of the game. I love my salespeople. I love the art, the craft, and the science of selling. And so, I lead a team at Patient Pop. Now, I'm I guess a thought leader or something bogus on LinkedIn. I have a Patreon group that I do like, you know, more hands on trainings. And now I'm here with you today, my man. So let's dive into it.
0: Excellent. I love the fact that you say you love your salespeople. When I look at the best managers that I've ever come across, they genuinely made you feel like you were loved as a family member. And that didn't mean that they would necessarily let you get away with shit yeah, you know, they would confront you, they would challenge you, they they wouldn't let you do stupid things that were going to do you significant harm. So talk to me about that because I, I think managers are pivotal to salespeople's success. So what are the qualities that make the greatest managers in your book?
1: So the greatest managers in in my book are micro aware. So I talk with my managers all the time. I don't want you to be micromanagers, but I need you to be micro-aware. I need you to be aware of the small things happening that add up to the big results that we're looking for and be behavior-based leaders, not results-based leaders. You can't manage a result. You can't just go get more pipeline. You can't just go get more revenue. You can only improve behaviors, processes, or systems and skills. That's what you manage, right? So what we talk about, as you manage those things, you develop people. And so the best managers are also people developers, right? They make their people better. So that's what I look for in my managers. And it is hard to be a manager on my team because I hold my managers to a very high bar on those topics that I just talked about. Because if you're not making your team better, I don't need a manager. To me, it is that simple. And it's something that a lot of managers don't actually focus on.
0: I think managers have only five lines on their job description. Hire the best people. Get the best out of them. Make sure they have the tools and resources they need to do their best work every day. Help clear the path and uh, clear roadblocks and protect them from idiocy from above and manage inclusively. So make sure everybody has a voice. If you put those five um, steps into play as a manager, and you derive your real satisfaction from seeing other people succeed and helping them achieve their full potential, then chances are you will do a great job as a manager. But I love that whole micro-aware, not micro-management. Definitely focused on behavior because you can control that. You can't control the result and make sure you're developing your people.
1: Yeah, vitally. absolutely. So- We just rolled out actually like a new system with my managers this past week. We're calling it like the BPS system, right? So behaviors, process, skill, and giving ratings accordingly, right? Like if someone's struggling in a certain area, what's the BPS score, right? Is it behavioral-based? Like they're just not doing it. They're not hitting the marks that they need to. Is it process-based? There are roadblocks. There are things that they don't know. We haven't coached. We haven't trained. It's not documented. Or is it skill-based, right? They're doing it. They're just not good at it and by having like kind of that rating I'm trying to help my managers focus on the right things and actually give measurement of like is it improving before the result the result is the end of everything else if you're just waiting to the end to see if someone's getting better you're wasting time versus you can measure a BPS week to week are they getting more skilled in this area this week yes great let's keep moving that direction
0: So again the parallel here. I was being interviewed for a podcast earlier today, and they were talking about how you can make sure that you've um, you've got enough pipeline today. And I said, well, the problem isn't today. It's 12 weeks ago. You have to focus. You have to look back upstream. The problem that you're facing now, you sowed the seeds weeks or months ago. And uh, what you need to do is look at the leading indicators that allow you to adjust your trajectory and to fix something before it becomes a problem. And this is where management really comes into its own, which is you have to have that foresight. And it also means that you have to be willing to look in the ugly mirror and recognize that more often than not, it's something that you are deficient in. Are you failing to keep your pipeline filled with good candidates on the bench? Are you failing to coach? Are you sacrificing coaching uh, for other higher priority activities of which there are none, incidentally? If anyone thinks that you can sacrifice coaching and things are going to turn out great, you're an idiot.
1: Yes, indeed. It's, it's something like, I hate that excuse too, because people say, well, why every manager? Well, there's actually two things wrong with this. One, if you ask most managers, if they're good coaches, they will say yes. If you ask most (laughs) reps, if they get good coaching, they will say no. So there's already a divide in terms of what managers think coaching is and whether it's good or not. Right. But then the second part, right. You ask any manager, right. Should you be coaching your reps? They'll all say yes. Right. Should you be coaching your reps more? They'll all say yes. And you say, well, are you? And then they'll say, well, not really because I don't have time. That's also just a bullshit excuse that you don't have time to coach your reps. It means you're spending time in the wrong areas. Right. This is always like, I'll give my fellow VPs shit for this all the time. And they're like, you know what? Got to get them on the phone fast, sink or swim, fight or flight, whatever the hell they want to call it. I'm like, time out, time out. So you don't coach your reps so they can make more calls. Let me rephrase that real quick. You want them making more bad calls. Like, Think about that for a second. You're not coaching because you want them on the phone, but by being on the phone with no coaching, they're not going to be good on the phone. Like, That's just a back-ass word way to think about anything of that coaching doesn't get done so they get more activity. They're just doing more bad activity.
0: I interviewed a guy called Paul Mort, who is not backward in coming forward. Let's put it that way. And he uh, says that procrastination is a choice. You would rather be staring at videos of kittens on YouTube than making your calls. You Mm -hmm. would rather be doing something less productive than coaching your people. And anybody who says, I don't have time to coach, the reason you don't have fucking time to coach is you're not coaching. If you were coaching, you would have time. It's like if you were spending time building your pipeline of candidates, then miraculously, you wouldn't be recruiting reactively and then having to make compromises so that you then create a management problem. So you have to fire the buggers later.
1: I don't know why I'm weird. I don't know why I'm an outlier in this. I don't know why, when people hear how much time we spend on coaching and development, people are like shocked by it. But I'm even happy, like, time do you spend? Oh, Jesus, like me personally or my team, right? So like me personally, okay. So within my own managers, right? So my management group, I have an SDR leadership meeting every single week for an hour and an AE leadership meeting every week for an hour and then a weekly leadership meeting every week for an hour, right? So that's three hours dedicated of my time directly to coaching the group, right? Of like, okay, these are coaching sessions. They're not pipeline reporting sessions. I have a dashboard. I don't need to waste a second asking you what the numbers are. I can see could that shit. I could not
0: agree more. Right? Like, Absolutely. It's there. I don't need that. So
1: these are coaching sessions. It's a
0: death for every other bugger has to sit around listening to everyone else lying from their forecast. Right. But why like, would you waste 10 man minutes for every minute that you're listening <laughs> to some tosser lie?
1: And I, lo- I love that too, right? Like, and my managers know this. So I mean, like, it's tough to be a manager for me because of the bar that I hold you, right? I say, numbers don't lie, salespeople do. I don't care what the salesperson says. I actually don't even care what you say. If it's not in the CRM and it's not measurable, it does not exist. I don't care. So let's talk about how we're actually going to change the behaviors here. So we'll role play tough decisions. We'll go through books together. Right? That's three hours every single week as groups. And then I still get involved in some of the one-to-one developments, right? This is just last, actually two weeks ago, we did role plays. I was the rep. I was the rep. They were coaching me and I gave them feedback on their coaching, right? On how to be a better coach. So I dedicate hours per week to developing my managers and my how managers, many managers are
0: developing. To you?
1: So I have two directors that roll to me. And under those directors, I have seven managers right now. And that would so be last probably last up. Week,
0: spent 11 hours coaching.
1: Almost, yeah. I was, it wasn't quite because like Andrew and Jess, there's their one hours, and then the groups so it's probably closer to eight to nine. I didn't do every manager individually over the last week, but that's a regular pattern, right? Of like making sure that that is there to make the coaching sessions there. And then that bubbles down. My managers are responsible for a significant portion of time of coaching their reps. They have their one on ones, they have coaching sessions, and they have like call, review, and role play sessions, right? Because those are also three very different things. A lot of managers try to cram them all into one, mm-hmm. right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, all right, let's have our one on one. Where are you to your numbers? Blah, 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 blah. Okay, like here's where you need to get better. And that's where the manager thinks they're coaching. Here's where you need to get better.
0: Sorry to interrupt, but you have just committed a day a week to coaching your direct reports, either mm-hmm. in groups or individually. Okay, listen to this 20%. And that's the baseline. I'm guessing when times are really tough, that number goes up, it never goes below that.
1: If things are tough, it's more, right? Like, I can't remember who, who said it, where they said, you know, I pray for two hours a day. And if I have a really busy day, I pray for four, right? And like, I love that analogy of like, you know, because most orgs approach it differently. When things get hard, coaching gets pulled out because they want to try to do more versus, like, actually, this week is a perfect example. I am having one-on-ones with every single manager on my team, in addition to the group coaching sessions we're already doing. Why? Because our performance over the last two months was not where it needed to be. So I'm going in and we're doing these sessions one-to-one, right? So I have four sessions today, four sessions tomorrow, two on Friday, right? So we can start doing all that math, right? This week is a minimum of two full days almost spent on one-to-one conversation and coaching with my managers. There's no bigger leverage point. It does not matter how good I am if my managers are weak, and it does not matter how good the reps are if the managers are weak. If you have good reps with weak management, the reps will leave. If you have great up-top leadership and weak management, the reps don't get better, right? The, the management level is where it all actually comes to, comes to bat, and most companies spend no time developing their managers at all.
0: This is really key. SRC did a research study at the beginning of this year, and the output of that was 94% of sales managers are not fit for purpose. 94, that's nine and a half out of 10, are not qualified to be in that position. If you are a leader and you have promoted someone or hired someone into that position, sort your act out. Get out there, make sure you do proper recruitment. And predictive hiring. Make sure you attract the right people into those roles. People who want to coach and train and develop other people. Who derive their satisfaction from seeing others thrive and grow and meet their potential. And then on pre-onboard them, on board them, train them and coach them. Because they are the most under-trained, under-service people in your business. And they're also in the most precarious position of all as well. Two bad quarters and they're out. And that's why the revolving door. It sends a terrible message to aspiring managers in terms of how they're being treated. And you know, I don't know about you, KD, but I've seen managers who take on a management role and they either lose their hair or they go gray within a year.
1: Crazy. Well, shoot, that's that. I mean, I don't know how to get rid of that because that happened, that's happening to me. It's been happening to me, right? Like management is hard. It's hard. Even when done well, it is incredibly hard. Here's why, right? If you actually think about us as a human species, how long has management been a thing where you reported to someone else to do your thing? That's not not how we evolved as a species, right? How often do people do what's best for them? Them as an individual, how often do people do what's best for them?
0: More more often than not, they're selfishly self-interested.
1: They're self-interested, but like let's think about this. How many people actually hit their goals, their resolutions, their hopes, their desires, their dreams? Very few. Very few. Now you're talking about management, where now you're trying to get someone else to hit not even their goal, but a company goal, right? People don't do what's best for them. As a manager, you're trying to get the best out of that person. It is incredibly hard. I actually just had this conversation with someone a few weeks ago where I was saying like, at sometimes I get how you, know, you got the two old grizzly guys in the <laughs> background there. Sometimes I get how you get there because caring is harder than not caring. Coaching is harder than not coaching. Hiring fast and hiring slow is so much easier than taking time to develop your people. And so when you give so much, that's what causes the hair to fall out. That's what causes it because you are worried about things you can't control. You can't control other people. So like for managers, it is hard. Even if you do it
0: right, it is so hard to do it. Uh, this raises a question around culture and philosophy. In Western culture, we have a philosophy that we should be independent, we should be self-sufficient. And if I look at Eastern cultures like China, I mean, 4,000 years ago, China had a population of a billion people. And they managed to manage their empire. But they have a Confucian mindset. And it's about the greater good. It's about making sure. And you know, if you look at the Confucian principles, it's all about making sure that the whole group and others are taken care of. I can't remember the city. It was uh, Kaifeng, I think it was um, called, and uh, in the 10th century, they had books, manuals on how to ensure that your elderly neighbor, neighbors were enjoying the autumn years of their life. Now, th- this is a, a markedly different mindset, and I'm really curious to see whether or not we have enough diversity within management. And we have enough different perspectives, different social groups, different educational levels, uh, different races, genders, religions. Because I, one of the things that I worry about is building a team too much in one's own image. Your thoughts?
1: There's a few things there, right? There's a cultural aspect of Western compared to Eastern and just how our <laughs> how our makeup is. And this goes way back into like sociology, right? Like, Who came to America? It wasn't the people that liked the orderly fashion. It was the people trying to create something on their own. It was people trying to get away. That is as American as America. Shit, we revolted (laughs) simply because someone was trying to tell, like as a country, this idea of not being told what to do is like ingrained in us. And it's unfortunate in a lot of ways right? But that's that's what we've come up to do, right? This is what's the dichotomy of being a human being. We are We are interesting creatures, okay? We love structure, but we hate being told what to do. We love novelty, but we fear change, right? Like, no one wants to do the same thing every single day, but we do, right? We'll stay in an unhappy or unfulfilling job or relationship just because we don't want to. Change, right? We'll drive a busted-up car for years simply because we don't want to change, even though we say that we do, right? So I learned this lesson early, right? I tell my managers this. You could probably ask them, and they'd probably nail this quote. First-time manager, first-time working for me, manager. The first thing that we cover, I say, I am not you. You are not me. We are not them, and they are not us. And you need to remember that, right? You are different than your reps. That's how you became a manager. I am different than you. It's how I became a VP. We are not the same. And expecting you to think the way that I think would be unfair to you. You expecting your reps to think the way that you think is unfair to them. I really harp on my managers when I hear them say things like, well, here's how I would do it. Here's how I did it when I was a rep. That doesn't matter. You are different <laughs> than your reps, right? You worked your way up. And so, are there things that I try to teach my teams that are from me? Yes. Am I trying to create a minion of KDs? No, I'm not. I used to. Early in my sales career, I was trying to make them like me. That's not great leadership because there is only one me. There is only one you. I can try to share best practices and ideas, but you're not going to be me. that frustrated me for a long time. Why don't you think like me? Why aren't you reading four books a month? Why aren't you getting up early and meditating? Why aren't you approaching your scripts like this? That's not the way that it works, right? And so that's what's so tricky, you know, especially in the U.S., especially salespeople too, because salespeople even more so don't like to be told what to do, right? The autonomy, the freedom—like it's 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 comical to me, just comical.
0: This is really interesting because I think. One of the things that really hacks me off is when on-job descriptions and adverts, they say must be able to motivate a sales team. You cannot motivate anyone to do anything ever. Motivation is an internal force, and it's made up of three critical components, your attitudes, your beliefs, and your values. When you understand those of another person, then you need to adapt your management and coaching style to feed and fuel those motivations. But you come to work for a different set of reasons to me. And um, uh, no amount of me trying to recruit in my own image, only weaker, is going to help. So what advice do you give managers in terms of paying attention to those qualities? (laughs)
1: So, this has also been a shift in I guess call it like my leadership journey is those were things I've focused on for a while as well to try to help motivate people. until I finally kind of figured out or understood, most people don't know those things about themselves. They don't have strong belief systems. They don't have strong internal whys. They don't know where they're trying to go. they They don't know those things about themselves. And so this is what a lot of managers will do: is they try to find those things. What motivates you? What do you have as a belief system? What, like, what's your mindset? And people will say the things that they think they're right, but
0: they don't actually know, right? But what I used to have this. Really ar- think? What do you what- really believe? At that? that's the question we should be asking. When they feed us that pablum and they tell us, "Oh, I'm money motivated," what a pile of horseshit! I don't know any salespeople that are genuinely money motivated. They're motivated by the choices that money can provide them. Anyone who's just motivated by money is a soulless prick.
1: So you said you don't know any like that. I know a decent amount, right? I'll say about 5% of salespeople are truly money motivated, but then that's why they come across the way that you say. They'll do anything to make that money. I do know them, but there's a decent
0: amount. Okay, I'm going to challenge you on that because I Mm -hmm. think... Yes, they say they're motivated by it, but actually, it's the choices that they can make with that money. And the problem is, it's not just the money itself, because all money is, is a benchmark of how much other people value what you do. Again, if what they're looking for is being top of the leaderboard, and money is the measure, that I understand, but just this pursuit of money for money's sake. I've met thousands of salespeople. And I've met virtually none that are motivated just by that.
1: So I could challenge the challenge back by (laughs) (laughs) the the people. Like the way I know they're motivated by money is because even though they're making the choices that money provides, they're still not satisfied. They're still not happy. Money is what they are using as their benchmark, right? So it's not the leaderboard to money. It's their internal. Like I had a rep like this. didn't matter how much she was making. She was never happy. About it, if she wasn't making more money, and I've had probably one of those per team on every team that I've led, and I've spoken to these people, they're in the one to three percent. They're not the majority, but they are there. Where no matter what the benchmark is, money. One of my good friends and mentors, money is one of his benchmarks. Like no matter what, right? He he has the the lake house, he has the cars, he has things in savings. It's still like, man, like I need to make more next year. Right, because that's their internal benchmark. So I do know people like that. Okay. The but full circle on this, to your point, you know, asking the like, what do you really believe? I don't believe most people even know how to answer that question. Huh. <laughs> like, and I used to <laughs> have this argument with one of my old CEOs because we talked about it. you got you know you find and I love by the way like I love Simon Sinek. I'm a I love his books. You know, find your why. Leaders he last is mandatory reading for my managers. Right, find your why. Most people don't have whys. They don't. They don't have a strong internal why. As human beings, most of our whys is survival. Just survive. That is our internal why. The people that succeed find a different why, but most don't have it. and That's why it's hard to pull it out of people to motivate them because they don't even have one yet. If you can help them find it, it's great, but it's hard. Back to what we were talking about before. Doing all the shit we're talking about is hard. This is why my hair falls out. Because I'm trying to do the things that we're talking about, and it's hard to do.
0: And my, my point being here, I believe that what we should be doing is doing this in the recruitment process. It's not good enough hiring somebody and then trying to find it afterwards. I think as managers, as leaders, we need to build this into the recruitment process and find people who we understand their motivation. It doesn't matter whether we agree with their motivation or not, but our job is to help them meet their fullest potential. Our job is to help them get better. So coming back, and again, I'm, I'm not fighting you on whether we're motivated by money, but for me, I'm never satisfied with my performance. I'm never satisfied with my result. There is always room for growth. There's always room for improvement. And that's the fundamental philosophy that I see in top performers. They're always raising their own game. And it's like golf. I'm not a great golfer by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, you know it's a, you know it's a walk spoiled for me, but it's it's mainly an opportunity to go and find other people's balls if I'm being perfect on. But it's me playing against my psyche. And for a lot of salespeople that really top performers, they're playing against their last shot. They're playing against their last minute. Yep. And yep. that, I think, is a key differentiator. But in the recruitment process, we must get much better at understanding what drives a person, what thrills them, where they want to get to, because that we can work with.
1: So just- it's funny you mentioned that. So I actually have found a tool that helps me with this. Now, a lot after trying to do this for years in the interview process, because again, back to my point or theme around people actually don't know the answers to this very often, there's a tool called patari.io. How do you spell that? um, P-I-T-T-A-R-I, patari.io. And what a rep can do is they, you know, they fill out like 30-ish some Questions, right? And it, you can't really game it unless you're really trying, right? And you fill out these questions. And what it does at the end is it spits out basically a report of how is this individual motivated and how do they make decisions? What's the best way to communicate with them? What's the best way to manage them, right? And it's, it's a phenomenal tool because, again, asking people, they don't always have the right answer, but how they make decisions and how they pick these answers and how they rank things and how they do things. Gives them even a better picture of themselves than most people know, right I so when I came into patient pop um, Jesus is over two years ago. now, in my first month, I sat down and had a one on one with every single rep, every single rep on the team, right? And one of the questions I asked them was, what motivates you? Now, what do you think most people said to that?
0: Money or I don't
1: know. Right. Most people say money. You and I already riffed on that. We already know that's not 98% of people, yet 98% of them said it. So even asking someone that question, they don't know. But then when I ask them the follow up questions, okay, do you like public recognition or private recognition? Do you want me to shout you out to the team or to you? Okay, public or private, you got to pick one. Do you want me recognizing you amongst your peers or amongst leadership? Hey, team, look what kd did hey travis look what kd did experiences or cash 500 gift card or here's a night out on the town for you and your significant other right tangible or experience here's a new laptop here's a trip to bali right and i ask them those questions to get a better idea of like okay now it's not like what motivates you it's like okay How would you rank these things? Patari does a great job of that insight. I encourage anyone listening to go look at that tool because you can do it in the interview process. You can see how are they doing these things, and it even gives you some suggestions on what to look into when you're talking to them.
0: Well, the other thing that you can do is there is a behavioral or a profile called Motivational Maps, and I found that very insightful as well because it looks at the nine different areas of motivation. And um, as part of the recruitment process and part of assessing a team that you've inherited, that can be incredibly powerful. Because as a coach, if you know precisely which buttons to press and where to focus your attention, and so I'll definitely be looking at Pitari because I've got three sales teams that I'm responsible for. So um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to discovering more about that. Thank you.
1: Because, and then we can bring this full circle, right? So, and I've talked about this with my managers. This was actually a couple of months ago. I was like, so cool. We have these profiles. Are you fucking using it? Yeah. Like, are you actually, okay, so this person's motivated by this. This person's motivated by this. Are you actually using it? How are you changing your messaging accordingly? Why are we running the same spiffs for the entire org if we know the org is split into three to four different buckets of motivation? Oh, here's a $100 gift card. That's only going to motivate 15% of the org. Great work, y'all. We ran a spiff that would only motivate 15% of the org.
0: And would probably switch off the other 85.
1: Right. They're like, dude, I don't want whatever. Right? Who cares? yeah. Yes, that, that's why Like, I'm not a huge believer in competitions either. I like contests, not competitions. Contests, anyone can win if they hit a benchmark, right? And you can reward them accordingly. Competitions tend to only motivate the competitive ones. And that's another big fallacy on salespeople. Everyone thinks they're so competitive. They are not. They like to win, they're not competitive. There's a huge difference. Huge yeah, they hate difference. the difference. <laughs> they hate, like, the huge difference. Uh, like, I I, So actually, funny enough, we talked on this real quick. This is how I knew um, Atari was pretty accurate. One of the things that it said about me is, Kevin can be overly competitive, finding places to create competitions where it is not needed or warranted. You could not put me in a better bucket than that. I want to beat you. It's not about winning. I want to beat you. There's a, that's competitive. Most salespeople are not, if they were, we wouldn't have an industry where only 45% of people are getting to quota. I would, I would never have to talk about dials. I would never have to talk about CRM hygiene. I'd never have to talk about coaching because if you were competitive, like athletes say they are, do athletes turn down coaching? If you play in high school or university or in the pros, do you turn down coaching? Do you go to that coach and go, you know what, you're not a seven-foot center, so I'm not going to take advice from you? No, they take that feedback and go, but most salespeople don't. So, competitiveness is not, that's why I don't like competitions. The same two to three people will win every single time.
0: This brings me to a couple of points. Uh, My pal, Mike Crandall, won seven Bose speakers, and his boss said to him, Mike, you must really love music. said, no, they're all uh, in my garage. I don't care about music. I just want to be the number one. Now, that's the first thing. Next thing is, um, if you're going to coach people, then make damn sure that the coaching is relevant to them. And so you've got these tools. You've got motivational maps. You've got Pitari. You've got the disk profile. You've got some predictor of their behavioral uh, sales DNA, like the salesperson secret code or Outmatch or whatever it happens to be. Mm -hmm. Make sure you build that into your coaching program. Coaching is not something you just turn up and wing. Coaching is something that needs to be planned for by the coach. It's not just something that you turn up and, yeah, you can do that if you've got lots of experience, but you are missing out on a huge opportunity each time if you don't have a program, a plan.
1: Now, I wanna make one call out here too, because we've been harping on leaders. I gotta make one real quick harp, though, to the sales reps, because okay. sales reps also make coaching them very hard, right? Yeah. They're not always open to coaching, they won't apply it, they don't listen. They think they know it already, so then they don't accept it. They're not seeking out knowledge, they actually won't take the feedback that they could improve, right? And so now you've got, you know, <laughs> it's fun, it all comes together. Why do managers, because like, if we change the question, why do managers not coach to, are sales reps easy to coach? The answer is also no. And so then we wonder why a lot of managers don't lean into it because reps are hard to coach. Yes, and yes, we all try to hire for coachability. Yes, we all try to screen for it. Again, if the sales industry was hyper coachable, would we be seeing the results that we're seeing right now? You said that you lead three sales teams. Okay, cool. How truly coachable are the majority of the reps where they are seeking it out, asking for it, applying it, measuring the impact, and then coming back and doing it again, right? So sales reps, if you're listening to this, you need to be open to coaching and not just open to it, seeking it out and applying it. Stop thinking like, oh, well, you didn't sell in my industry for 10 years, so you can't teach me anything. Really?
0: So to build on this, build on this. If you listen to, I, I've done some podcasts with some outstanding reps, Alexine Mudoir, Gabrielle Blackwell, David Weiss, and Tom Castley. Uh, these guys are just at the top of their game. And they're either SDR managers or AEs, or now they've moved into uh, team leadership and management. And they seek out coaching. Tom Shodoff took his business from 42 million to $1.2 billion in five years. He seeks out coaching. Jim Leg, he's taken his business from $10 million to $500 million in t- uh, five years. He seeks out coaching. He coaches. All his managers coach. It drips down. And so this is a couple of things. Listen to the interviews I've done with Amy Woodall around owning your 50, which is basically own your shit. You own 50% of all the shit that hits you. You are responsible for how you responded and what got there. The next thing is make sure that when you hire veterans, they understand that coaching is a mandatory part of their job and it's non-negotiable. If they think they're the finished article, send them off. Give them a good reference to your competition, and make sure that they are also involved in coaching. One of the things that I've seen—have have you ever come across a lady called Mini Silver? She runs Delancey Street, which is a rehab center, Mm -hmm. and I think it's in Chicago, and the work that she does is brilliant. So, she will have a black gang leader mentoring a white supremacist in the first week of joining Delancey Street. Then the white supremacist will be working with a Latino pimp the week after. Now, they have a 98% success rate, only 2% recidivism. Now- This is a really interesting process because the average is over 80% recidivism in traditional systems. And what they do is they set them into pods, into groups where uh, it's a small group, and they fight and they argue, but it's always about behavior. It's never personal. And they have a referee to make sure it doesn't uh, get out of hand. You look at uh, how important it is that senior people... Or more senior people are coaching and developing the next level because a rising tide raises all boats. But what I've found from decades of coaching is that I learn as much as the people I am coaching. Now, in your experience, when you've uh, uh, encouraged that, what kind of ripple effect goes up the chain of command?
1: So it's why we have something called tribal training, it's built into our onboarding program. It's so it's called tribal training. It's built into our onboarding program, right? The tribe teaches the tribe, right? So like this was something too like about two years ago, I got really into the science of learning. And I can't, I think this was from might have been from talent code. I'm not sure. I'll go back and find it. I think it was in talent code or the science of accelerated learning, what it talked about was you know remember i asked you earlier like how long management has actually been like a thing for our species the same thing they talk about is like how long a teacher has been a thing right where you sat there and you learned from one person the tribe taught the tribe you got multiple pieces of advice right there wasn't like a spear throwing teacher like the you got feedback from multiple people within the tribe that you were a part of right and so i built tribal training into my onboarding where a decent chunk of the training and the coaching is coming from the tribe, right? So you get designated a tribal trainer. We teach you how to be a coach, how to give feedback, how to like actually train somebody. And then new reps are coming up and in, right? And so who do you think is more often part of the tribal training? I've got my newest reps and my veteran reps. So you just came out of onboarding. I'd prefer nobody better than you to now teach the next class because to your point, now you're reinforcing it. If you're teaching it, it reinforces it to you as well, and you just came out of it. And then I have my vets involved as well to give those finishing touches. So tribal training is built into my onboarding and into my entire org.
0: And there there is a beautiful example of this. There's a professor called Sugata Mitra, and he's a professor at Newcastle University in uh, the UK. And um, he has a wonderful experiment. He goes to a village in India that's 200 miles from anywhere, and he builds a wall, puts a screen in uh, with a generator and a satellite modem, and then he leaves, and there's the mouse, and comes back about six weeks later, and there are 50 kids around it with two or three of them controlling the mouse, and they're all playing with it, and they're all giving advice, but what's really interesting is in six to eight weeks... These children have learned English so that they can play on the internet. Now, then he comes back and he says, you know, kids, this is really interesting. Well done. I'm going to come back in a couple of weeks. But when I do, I'd like you to do me a presentation on photosynthesis. Okay. Now, get this. These kids average age about 10 to 12 are the ones controlling it. And they've got six to 14-year-olds. In the meantime, they've been teaching their parents and their grandparents English as well. But when he comes back two weeks later, these children who 8 to 12 weeks before never spoke English are using PhD-level material to do their presentations. That's the power of tribal learning, because Mm. the answer is always in the room. And you learn by learning from one another, and you learn the most by teaching.
1: Everyone's talked about what's happened since we've gone fully remote and all the challenges to it. This is the area that's been the hardest to figure out and duplicate is the lack of tribal training, the energy of your tribe, the connection to your tribe, hearing your tribe, support from your tribe, all those. That's the hardest part right now of what's missing is you don't have that as much anymore. It's not the same. They've even said it's like mirror neurons don't fire the same over zoom as they do face to face, right? You're face to face, you smile, the other person's mirror neurons, they fire off too, right? They get a smile in their head, even if it didn't hit their face, it's not the same over zoom. We don't get that energy transfer. So that's one of the areas I think has been the hardest with the shift to fully remote is that tribal training. It's not the same. It doesn't like, I've actually adjusted my onboarding to take a little bit longer because I've been noticing it's not landing as much as when they are in the room together doing it, right? When you're there together training and you're with it, so that's an area that I'm still trying to find and figure out because it's it's needed. It really is.
0: So if anyone listening has ideas that you can share with KD and myself, then please add them in the comments. Get in touch with us. This is stuff that we will do, we'll talk about again and uh, we'll raise, we'll share this information because uh, every one of us is being affected by it. So please, if you're involved in this, if there's anything that you can add, questions that you've got uh, in terms of creating that kind of tribal learning, then please get in touch and share those thoughts with us. So Katie, tell me this, measurement. I see so many people measuring overmeasuring, and measuring lag indicators rather than leading indicators. And they're investing outrageous amounts of money and time and effort in MarTech and sales enablement technologies and all of this. What's the minimum that one can measure and one should invest in terms of technology in order to create a highly functional sales operation?
1: So if I look at my like non-negotiables and what I manage my managers and the BPS system to, I'm looking at activity, connect rates, right? So how often do we get in touch with the person we're trying to get in touch with? Conversion rate on that person to appointment. Show rate, how many of those appointments show up? Close rate, how many of them actually close? Cycle, how long does it take? Average contract value and average users per contract and average user value, right? Those are the metrics that I track. And with those, though, and this is where I think it's different from a lot of people, is with each of those metrics, I also have the behaviors that are associated to them. So if someone is low in revenue, well, let's work backwards. Which one of these metrics is off? Which one of these metrics is having the biggest impact on their ability to get to their results? Okay, it's average, close rate's good. Run, they're running enough meetings, they're still not getting there. Okay, average contract value, cool. Let's look at the behaviors that go to average contract value, right? So to, we talked about this very briefly at the beginning. I talk about the numbers very little. I talk about behaviors as much as I can. Right, people love to measure numbers. They're not measuring the behaviors that are leading to them. So those, to me, are like my my stack of metrics because those are things that I believe there's a behavior, a process, or a skill set that can be enhanced to improve it. Right? Because there's also there's this backlash, like salespeople were so funny, man. Like it's always just black or white. It's like sales is an art. Sales is a science. It's all about quantity. It's all about quality. Okay, if you make one quality dial, guess what? You're not getting to quota. Sorry, like I'm just telling you right now, it could have been the best dial in the world. You're not getting to quota off that because I happen to know that your connect rate is 10%. So in order to have 10 conversations, you need to call a hundred people. And I also know your conversion rate is now 30%. So if you talk to those 10, you're only going to get three meetings out of it. So that's how I look at measurement is I can build what it is. I actually built a calculator for my team that shows them based off their metrics, where they have the lever points and what they can do to pull them. Right. And that helps them start to visualize it. Cause if you're just preaching activity to your team, or you're just saying, we got to bring our close rates up until they can see the impact of it. It doesn't matter. Right. So that's what I look at is like my table stakes for, um, for metrics, and then, but also what leads into those metrics.
0: Very important. What about technology? Because uh, again, I think that yeah, you know, that people have started kowtowing to the the church of technology, and you see fifteen different market tools and a dozen different sales uh, enablement technologies. Uh, I think most of that stuff seems to get in, in the way, and people are sacrificing effectiveness and humanity for efficiency.
1: Well, and that's that's you know to the point of those metrics. If I roll out a new tool and none of the metrics I just listed change, I don't need that tool. Period, right? So like are there tools that help with some of these things? Yes, there are. But I actually measure it, right? I can look and see since I've rolled out a call recording software, our close rates have gone up on average anywhere from 6 to 8% because we're doing better coaching that's a worthwhile tool. Oh, like, and this is another good example. Oh, I wish I had LinkedIn sales navigator. And I go, okay, let's look at this. How many demos are we actually getting from LinkedIn sales navigator on a monthly basis? Oh, our connect rate, we don't have one. We can't track it. Oh, our conversion rate super low. We don't actually need it. So if you, anyone that like is buying software, you got to tie it to some sort of metric, not result. You can't just say, oh, our revenue is going to go up. You got to look at the connect rates. But then to your other point, Jesus, like stop scaling suck. Because that's what most people are doing with these tools is they're just scaling really bad things. Oh, I can send one bad email in five minutes. Now I can send 10 bad emails in five minutes. Yes. Oh, I can send or ten thousand know, or 10,000, right? Oh, right. Like I can personalize it scale. Now I can personalize for everybody right like oh i can get 30 leads in 10 minutes like we're just scaling bad systems that's why the whole pyramid is shaking right now is because the sales industry hasn't gotten better they're just doing more and there's a ceiling right we're burning our own bridges right now and it really sucks
0: and the the people that i see suffering at the end of that often are the people at the bottom of the chain of command and it's the SDRs that get in the neck. And yeah, the, you see all these corpses littering the battlefield. And a lot of this is driven by really shitty philosophies, starting with investors. What I see investors doing is they drive fucking awful behaviors. They over-assign quota because they have the belief that you're going to end up burning through people. Some will, some won't, so what? And they, they hit their hundred million turnover target, whilst you add up everyone's quota to one hundred and fifty million. And the people who got them to be successful aren't rewarded. They're burnt out. They are looking over the uh, the fence. Why? Why do we still persist with these acts of idiocy?
1: Money, right? The venture capital. This is I just finished a book called the, the Secrets of Sand Hill Road or something, and what talks about venture capital. Is they use the baseball analogy. So I, I try to not use a lot of sports analogies because they're overused, but I'll, I'll use one here. It's talk about like in baseball, right? Like if someone has a good batting average, right? 300 or above, they make it to the hall of fame. That's actually not what venture capital is trying to do. They don't want a good batting average. They want a good home run average. So they don't care if you strike out a hundred times, as long as that 99th swing is always a home run. And so what they're doing is they don't even anticipate or believe most companies will succeed. And they're not trying to. They're trying to find the ones that can blow up and then they do. So the systems that they're putting on all companies will only work for the one that blows up. And then that's why everything gets littered, right? Is most companies can't scale that way they can't but they force that formula onto all companies and then that's why it doesn't work right we so patient pop we just raised some money and it's just so funny like how people respond right we we raised our series c and everyone's reaching out congrats that's awesome look at that 50 million in the bank Woo! right they're like celebrating it it's so, like y'all you understand that first of all raising the money is not the goal okay let's just that's not like the goal like congrats you raised this money but two you tend to forget what that means y'all see that number and go okay 50 million congrats i see that number and go they want 500 million back that is a very like they think that, that money's not free everyone listening that money is not free they want it back at a big time return right and so that's why i think it gets so <laughs> messed up is. Like, oh yeah, they want it fast, right? And so you get that money, and now with that money, you have to grow quickly because that's what it will take to get the valuation that they want to get that money back. They actually don't even care, dude. You're gonna just give the money back. They're like, whatever, it's a it's a write-off. They want the explosion, and so that's where it's tricky is VCs, and there are some good VCs out there. I don't want this to come across as a bashing session, but like they they actually don't care if you're good. They don't care if you're good. Either you're great or it doesn't matter. Right? It just doesn't matter at that point. So that's why it just it ruins a lot of companies. If there were different ways to get capital at a lower either rate or lower like mindset they could grow slower but better versus trying to do it fast and just destroying their
0: company. This is where I think a lot of founders get it wrong because the question they insist on asking is can you help me get funding? The question I believe they should be asking is can you help me build a fundamentally strong business, scale, win lifetime customers who are delighted with what we do, and create become a destination employer where I have highly engaged employees? Now, if those are the questions and those are the targets that you're aiming for, then you end up with a business that can scale incredibly fast. And if you do have to go for funding, it's for the right reasons and on your terms. Right, getting some funding
1: is important. In fact, it's one of the most common denominators of most successful companies. Is they did take funding at some point. That is fine, but you know we can wrap on this. I have to jump here in a second. But the the point here though is this idea of more. What's wrong with running a ten million dollar per year profitable business? Like, do you know how life changing that could be as a founder if you had a ten million dollar per year business that was profitable versus chasing this billion-dollar unicorn? Actually, let's cut that in half, $5 million per year in profitable. Let's cut that in half, $2.5 million per year in revenue, but profitable. Why isn't that sexy? Why isn't that exciting to people? Why do they feel they need to go be this unicorn? Right? If you're running a 2 to $3 million per year business that is profitable, it means you're taking home probably, call it low-end, 200 K k per year, and then sharing profits with your employees. That's a great life, and it's yours, and you don't have to answer to a board. You don't have to answer to a VCs. You don't have to answer to anybody because it's yours. So any founders listening, build a good business. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that is a life-changing opportunity for you to run a good, small business than trying to chase the big one. So I hope that is something people can take with them here.
0: Fantastic. Katie, we're going to wrap up in a second. Two very quick questions if you had a golden ticket and you could go back and advise your idiot 23 year old self what one bit of advice you know that he'd probably ignore would you give him
1: so at 23 it would have been practice more i was definitely at 23 i'd just started to absorb that's when i really started to read right and start to absorb but i wasn't putting a lot of it into practice right so i was learning but I wasn't executing on what I was learning. So that would probably be like my, my golden, thing. right? It's like, cool, like you're reading these things, but what are you doing with it? So I think that would have been my golden ticket to, to myself because you can learn, but then you still got to do. Cool. So that Advice. would be- And
0: perfect practice. Perfect yes. practice makes perfect practice, practice. And final question, how can people get hold of you?
1: You can find me on, on LinkedIn. Um, I don't have any of the other social channels, no Graham, Twitter, Snap, TikTok any of that, Like, find me on LinkedIn. I have my private Patreon group where I do monthly like, hour-long trainings on like real topics because you can only learn so much from 1,300 characters on LinkedIn. So on Patreon, it's inside sales excellence. But as um, like I said, I'm here. I care about my people. I care about salespeople. I want them all to succeed. And so if I can be a resource, please reach out.
0: Kevin Dorsey, KD, thank you so much.
1: Absolutely, my man. This is fun.
0: This is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this helpful and insightful, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you've got ideas that can help us, like I asked earlier on, around getting the tribe to learn more effectively, then please share those. And if you'd like to get in touch, my email is marcus at laughs-last.com or contact me through LinkedIn. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.